Welcome to the Winter War Podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. The Russian invasion of Finland in November 1939 came as a bloody shock to the people of the small Baltic state, not least the government, which appeared to have misread Joseph Stalin's intentions. The location for this terrible saga lies at the easternmost end of the Baltic Sea, between the Gulf of Finland and the huge Lake Ladoga. This is the rugged and very narrow Karelian Isthmus. Flying over this territory in a light plain reveals its stark and stern beauty, cut laterally by crisp blue lakes, blanketed in an evergreen forest, stubby grey, red-grey hills pop up here and there. There was virtually nothing of value here at first. No minerals, very little agriculture. The soils are poor. That was going to change when the Finns discovered large deposits of nickel in the Patsama region and would hand over mining concessions to the British. The Russians did not like that one little bit. But it wasn't minerals that led Moscow to decide to invade their much smaller neighbour. It was the fear of the Germans. This little bit of land was going to be fought over as it had been so often through history. The Karelian Isthmus is a land bridge between the seething eastward mass of Mother Russia and Asia and the immensity of the Scandinavian peninsula that swells downward to the west. It's like a highway for tribal migration, a route for trade, a channel for cultural movements, a gateway for conquest. The armies that have stormed across this Isthmus include the Mongols, the Teutons, the Swedes, the Russians themselves. And as the drum beats towards war in the 1930s pounded, Soviet President Joe Stalin was acutely aware that the Germans could use the same route to attack Leningrad and Russia from the northwest. The Third Reich juggernaut could pass eastwards through the Karelian Isthmus at the point where it widens into the Finnish mainland and hit Leningrad in a matter of hours. At least, that was what Moscow convinced itself on the eve of World War II. The fact that to get there, the Germans would have to ship a vast quantity of material across the Baltic Sea was not really taken into account. It would have been a logistic nightmare that wasn't really feasible at that stage of the war. Attacking via Sweden overland was even more difficult. It made sense for Hitler and his generals to attack Leningrad, but using a far more common route via Lithuania. Leningrad is, of course, St. Petersburg, and St. Petersburg is the hometown of Russian President Vladimir Putin another Russian leader who is paranoid about the Baltic states. Conflict between Russia and Finland goes back a long way, but we'll start piecing things together in 1703, which is the year Peter the Great had decided to build his new capital of St. Petersburg on a swampy, insect-infested river delta right at the eastern edge of the Baltic Sea, his window to Western Europe, he called it. The problem with a window is that it creates an access point for those who want to get in as well as those who want to get out. Furthermore, Peter the Great didn't actually own that land, it belonged to Sweden. But that didn't stop Peter because he'd been indulging in a power struggle with the Swedish monarchy for years, and the prize for both was domination of the Baltic states. That would open up the trade routes with Western powers for both powers. 100,000 Russian serfs died draining the swamp over the next 10 years as they drove pilings into the sludge on which the city would be built. Then Peter reminded his army that what he called the ladies of St. Petersburg would never be able to sleep peacefully as long as the Finnish border was so close. So his army conquered the main Swedish port of Vipuri and what would become the Finnish Isthmus, 
along with the vast stretch of the mainland of Karelia, pushing Sweden back. This took place during the Great Northern War, which pitted the Swedes against the coalition of Denmark, Norway, Saxony and Russia. The remaining Swedish forces in the plague-stricken areas south and east of the Baltic Sea were evicted, with the last city, Tallinn, falling in the autumn of 1710. Peter the Great now had his buffer zone. The coalition members then partitioned most of the Swedish dominions among themselves, destroying their independence. The war ended with the defeat of Sweden, leaving Russia as the new dominant power in the Baltic region and as a new major force in European politics. But that didn't mean Sweden's sway here was totally eradicated. It's quite a complex picture. Between 1720 and 1800, the territory we call Finland now was exchanged a number of times and run by mixed governments, Russian, then independent, then Swedish. In reality, Sweden managed to retain control over the rest of Finland beyond the Isthmus until 1809, when the entire country was ceded to Russia following the Napoleonic Wars. Up until then, the Swedes had ruled magnanimously, loosely. Citizens enjoyed religious tolerance. There was no censorship. Finnish political rights were similar to other European states. When Tsar Nicholas I took over, he left the Finns to their own devices. They had their own schools, financial institutions, including banks, their own laws. Finns began climbing the vast bureaucratic ladder that was the Russian civil service. They regarded the Russians generally in a positive light, a kind of bolshy but benevolent elder uncle who lived next door. From 1810 all the way to the revolution of 1917, 400 Finnish generals or admirals served in the Russian army and its navy. One of the most famous who was part of the Russian army was Gustav Mannerheim, a hero of the Russo-Japanese War of 1904. Don't be confused with his Slav Teutonic name, he was very much the essence of a Finnish war hero, and he became Moscow's most ardent opponent, as you'll hear. Things for the Finns changed radically under a series of more oppressive Tsars after Nicholas I, and that ignited Finnish anger and set off a fervent Finnish nationalism. This period, prior to the First World War, saw Russification foisted on the Finns and passive resistance to the Russians developed. Nicholas II was stubborn and appointed a clumsy oaf of a governor called Bobrikov to take over Finland in 1894. The governor quashed the emergent Finnish nationalism and conscripted citizens unwillingly into the Russian army. These included the composer Jean Sibelius, who promptly composed an epic poem called Finlandia, which was a strident call for an independent Finland. Inevitably, a young civil servant called Eugene Sharman walked up to Bobrikov in 1904 and shot him dead on the stairs of the Helsinki Senate building. This set in motion a series of cause and effect, largely as a result of the blunt actions of the even more oafish Russian secret police. The First World War led to the Finnish nationalists indulging in that most dangerous of delusions, making your enemy my enemy, and sidled up to the Germans. 2,000 Finnish youths were invited to Germany to be trained between 1915 and 1916, and they became part of the 27th Prussian Jager Battalion. Many of the Finnish officers and NCOs of the coming Winter War were from this battalion, but they were tainted to some extent by a perception that they too were part of this master race and spoke of themselves as blue-blooded elites. They were right-wing. When the Russian Revolution in November 1917 led to the Tsar's overthrow, the Finns declared independence and Lenin could do very little. He was fighting his own civil war against the pro-monarchy forces, so Moscow initially recognized this new Finnish government. 
Finland began to experience a series of social ructions, class struggles, then famine, and the standard of living that plunged. There were 40,000 Russian soldiers stationed in Finland, and these joined the new Finnish Communist Red Guard, which began to fight the White Guard, the militant arm of these upper classes and the bourgeoisie. A Finnish civil war had begun. Leading the White Guard was Karl Gustav Mannerheim, former Tsarist general. He's going to be a crucial character in this winter war. You'll hear about him all the time. The Reds managed to hold Helsinki and the heavy industrial heartland around Tampere, but the Whites were better soldiers. The Yaga Battalion knew how to fight, the Reds did not, and the political leadership of the Whites approached Germany for help. Mannerheim, despite his Teutonic name, opposed the idea, but couldn't stop the German Imperial Army landing in Finland in April 1918. The Red Finns surrendered six weeks later. A treaty was signed at Tartu in 1920, which formalized peace between Finland and the new USSR. There was a sort of trade-off, however. Finland had to destroy all the fortifications on the islands in the Gulf of Finland, and there was a lot of vacillating about the fate of the East Karelia citizens, who were Russian by law but actually lived in Finland. This became a major unresolved issue. The Finns faced a Russia that had backed the Reds in their civil war and distrust grew. Moscow's diplomacy pointed towards the discomfort they felt about their independent neighbour, which had rejected socialism so violently. As far as the Russians were concerned, Finland could not be trusted. Helsinki had invited Russia's arch-enemy Germany onto its territory just to cap off that trust deficit quotient. As the quick march towards the Second World War grew, the Finnish government then appeared to shut its eyes rather than face a looming threat from the east. Lenin resented giving up Finland, but he had other fish to fry back home at first. When he died, Stalin had even worse perceptions of Finland. They had allowed the Russian White Army and British Navy to launch attacks against Bolsheviks in the Baltic, and Stalin was paranoid about the huge Arland archipelago, the vast stretch of islands that lie between Sweden and the Finnish coast. Stalin was worried about the Germans seizing these strategic points and knew that if Berlin decided to go ahead, the Finns couldn't stop him. That would mean no commodities or material could move through the Baltic to Leningrad and Kronstadt. Then there was the new Murmansk to Leningrad railway line, which passed through East Karelia, the territory that was the subject of Finnish nationalist claims. Stalin's concerns grew as German power grew in the 1930s, and he was afraid Hitler would offer to support the Finns, thus driving the Russians out. Finnish government officials told Moscow they were aware of these fears, and that they would remain neutral in what appeared to be an approaching war between fascism and communism. But Stalin preferred something a bit more direct. The Finns, he said, were not allowed to remain neutral. Their territory was too valuable, too strategic. The next phase of diplomacy was characterized by accelerating demands from both the Germans and the Russians. Shortly after the Austro-German Anschluss of March 1938, the Soviet government launched its first informal talks with leading Finnish statesmen. Second Secretary of the Soviet delegation in Helsinki, Boris Yatsev, secured an audience with Foreign Minister Holsten and confided that there were ways for Soviet-Finnish relations to improve. Moscow was concerned about the aggressive intentions of Nazi Germany and it was assumed that Hitler had a multi-pronged attack on the USSR in mind. One of these attack wings would undoubtedly pass through Finland. Adolf Hitler muddied the water still further by declaring that Germany supported the Finns' claim of neutrality 
Hitler was more interested in Swedish iron ore than anything inside Finland, but Stalin viewed Hitler's comments as extremely suspicious. Unfortunately, it was at this point the Finnish fascists began to suggest that Helsinki should act as a broker for Germany in negotiations with Sweden, a suggestion dismissed by most Finns as populist madness, but that's not how Soviet spies reported it back to Moscow. All this back and forth meant that Stalin was developing an unfortunate misconception about the Finns and fascism. It's true that the right wing in Finland was implicated in a series of attempted coups. It's also true that a clique of fascist officers of the 100,000-strong Civic Guard were German sympathizers. A right-wing uprising in 1932 had collapsed, and that pretty much ended the effectiveness of the Finnish fascists. The country had survived the Depression, coup attempts, fascist uprising, and the economy seemed to be looking up. Moscow kept the pressure up, saying that Finland had to prove their good faith with a tangible, real-world gesture. Finnish Prime Minister Kayanda put out feelers. What would this entail, he asked. Ah, that's easy, replied the Russians. The most suitable gesture would be for Finland to cede or lease what the communist country called the valueless islands in the Gulf of Finland to Russia. Both Kayanda and Holsti rejected this as out of the question. It was Finnish soil on these islands, they said, and the waters were visited in summertime by Finnish fishermen. The political fallout from just handing over their territory would have reignited the extreme right. The Russians, on the other hand, wanted to take these islands because it was vital for them to protect their marine base at Luga Bay. This kind of ping-pong diplomacy shifted back and forth until March 1939, when the Kremlin returned to the subject of the Finnish strategic position. The Russians' new angle was suggesting that Finland leased the island of Sursari, otherwise known as Hochland and four other smaller islands to Russia for 30 years, and Moscow in turn would hand over a chunk of the disputed Karelian land in exchange. As a sweetener, Russia would also allow Finland to hold on to the Arland Islands, provided a Moscow-linked inspector could pitch up any time and inspect. Up to now, these negotiations had taken place behind closed doors, but the information leaked. The political class in Finland and some of the high-ranking military had heard about what was going on, and Gustav Mannerheim said Finland should give Moscow what they wanted. The islands were not strategically useful to the Finns, and the sign of good faith would buy them time to build up their own military. The experienced general warned it was no good riling the Russians when Finland was in no position to back up their stance with any sort of firepower. Just to provide some background here, there was not a single anti-tank weapon in Finland in early 1939. They only had 12 fighter planes that were considered up-to-date, and they had virtually no mobile communications equipment. Furthermore, their machine gunners were so short of ammunition, they could only fire 12 rounds per session at the shooting range. And the artillery was so obsolete, it dated back to 1905. This was not an army that was going to cause the Russians any sleepless nights. Apparently. Mannerheim wailed about the state of unpreparedness, and he was laughed at behind his back. A curmudgeonly old soldier, said the Helsinki chattering clauses, prone to alarmist warnings, a man of the past. But the warmongering that both Hitler and Stalin were indulging in did have one positive effect. The opposing Finnish political movements were being forced together rather than split along left or right-wing lines, something that Stalin was going to completely miscalculate shortly. The war clock was ticking, and the Finns were caught between the Russian bear and the German wolf. 
Under extreme pressure, the Swedes then abandoned support for what was known as a Stockholm plan to fortify Ireland, further isolating the Finns. Unfortunately for Finland, its border is only a few miles away from St. Petersburg, and their point of no return had been reached. By now, Stalin had read Conrad Hayden's book, The History of German Fascism, and knew that the blatant anti-Semitism of the day would lead Moscow having to fight a war against Berlin. Stalin's pencil notes in that book indicate other thoughts. Was it to be a clash of two dictators or their alliance? His famous pencil notes included an underlined section in Hayden's book that read, Hitler does not know what he's promising. His promises cannot be regarded as those of a valuable partner. He breaks them when it is in his interest to do so. Stalin read all of this at the very moment his foreign minister Molotov was negotiating a non-aggression pact with the very same duplicitous dictator. Among the news that his secretary Dvinsky had secured during a trip to Germany was that the German land forces now numbered over 3.7 million men, about half of them mechanized. The Germans had 3,195 tanks, more than 26,000 artillery pieces and mortars, about 400,000 Air Force personnel for around 4,000 aeroplanes, 160,000 Navy personnel and 107 warships. This was the most powerful army in the capitalist world. The Soviet dictator was also reading a book called Hitler Rearms, edited by Dorothy Woodman. He was apparently struck by a chapter on the ideological preparation for war. Woodman's description of the sheer scale of the ideological conditioning of the German people was actually a revelation. The appeals and the slogans were addressed less to reason and intellect than to instinct and nationalistic sentiment. Mob mania. Now, that was something that was music to Stalin's ears. The rituals and blind fanaticism of a whole hierarchy of Führers were designed to dim the masses' awareness and to train mindless and cruel functionaries, as Dmitry Volkogonov writes in his incredibly well-researched biography of Stalin. The fascist ideologues had created an atmosphere of psychological exaltation, nationalistic hysteria, a kind of political psychosis. Then these ideologues put the hypnotized nation to work for their own ends. Sounds remarkably modern. What with the plethora of tools and platforms these days, using social media, for example. From the Russian point of view in 1939, facing Moscow on the other side of the aisle were Britain and France. Stalin and his cohorts had to make a decision. What was it to be? A pact with this dangerous fascist Hitler, or isolation and probably a war with the fascist at some point if he didn't sign the pact? Stalin was ripe for a decision. On the other hand, some sort of anti-fascist pact was enticing. It would make the USSR part of a coalition with Britain and France against the increasingly expansionist German Reich, and also have enormous material and moral advantage. However, there were signs in 1939 that Great Britain and France would form a bloc with Nazi Germany allied against the USSR instead. It was all a blur of diplomacy, honesty buried beneath the words of populist leaders who made lying a national sport. A rather peculiar situation developed in August 1939 with very little progress in Moscow's talks with Paris and London. Stalin's emissaries were also desperately making contact with Berlin around this time. And in a kind of mad diplomatic love triangle, Anglo-German talks were underway in London simultaneously. Germany's ambassador there, Dirksen, and the Prime Minister's representative, Harold Wilson, were trying to build bridges, 
But it was Berlin who was moving quickest because the Reich had initiative. They knew what they were going to do. On the 12th of August, Stalin received a dispatch from his ambassador in Germany, Georgi Astakov, who said the conflict with Poland was escalating. The next day, 13th of August, the German government took up Moscow's offer to hold talks. On the 15th of August, Russian Foreign Minister Vashislav Molotov was handed a note that read, The German government takes the view that between the Baltic and Black Sea there is no question that cannot be settled to the complete satisfaction of both countries. The note went on to include the Baltic Sea itself and the Baltic states as well as Finland, which of course had no idea that their very existence was being bandied about so cavalierly. After some to and fro on the 19th of August, Germany's ambassador Friedrich Werner Graf van der Schulenberg went to see Molotov and told him that there is fear in Berlin of a conflict between Germany and Poland. Von der Schulenberg insisted that German Foreign Minister Ribbentrop be invited to Moscow immediately. Berlin demanded a non-aggression pact be signed post-haste. Molotov suggested 26th of August, but Hitler wrote a famous telegram, which arrived on Stalin's desk on the 20th of August. It contained the following points, which I've edited down for brevity. To Mr. Stalin, I sincerely welcome the signing of the new German-Soviet trade agreement as a first step towards restructuring German-Soviet relations. Two. Concluding a pact of non-aggression with the Soviet Union means for me a consolidation of German policy for the long term. A few other points, and then... The tension between Germany and Poland has become insupportable. Poland's behavior towards a great power is such that a crisis may occur any day. A few more points, then... I think it wise not to lose any time. Therefore, I again propose that you receive my foreign minister on Tuesday, 22 August, or at the latest on Wednesday, 23 August. I would be pleased to receive your immediate reply, Adolf Hitler. The Fuhrer's tone was blatant. Stalin stared at the telegram, reading it a few times, and then using his famous pencil, drew a line under the phrase, A crisis may occur any day. He also drew a pencil line under the closing sentence, I would be pleased to receive your immediate reply. Stalin and Molotov sat looking at the message for some time, alongside each other. They weighed the pros and cons and came to a decision. Stalin stood up, paced around, then dictated a letter to Molotov. To Chancellor of Germany, A. Hitler. 21 August, 1939. Thank you for your letter. Then some uh, social niceties, followed by... The Soviet government has instructed me to inform you that it agrees to Mr. Ribbentrop's visiting Moscow on 23 August. Stalin. Short and sweet. Not only did they sign the pact, but went further, agreeing to a number of supplementary treaties known as the Additional Secret Protocol. These defined the two signatory spheres of interest in the Baltic region, which included the paragraph, In the event of a territorial and political rearrangement of the areas belonging to the Baltic states, in brackets, Finland, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, close brackets, the northern boundary of Lithuania shall represent the boundaries of Germany and the USSR. Poland had already signed a non-aggression pact with Germany in 1934. Britain and France did the same in 1938. Not that any of these was going to do any good in the coming war, but that's hindsight, of course. Now the most pressing issue for Stalin was Finland. The die was cast. And so we enter this period of darkness, which I will cover on a weekly basis, tracking the course of the Winter War, starting with the immediate preamble, then following the action. This was an invasion that Russia thought would take a few days, but ended up taking 105 days. It's a David vs. Goliath tale, 
a defensive struggle of extraordinary courage, determination, a stand that gave the Russians such a severe bloody nose that to this day Moscow continues to smart from the sting and its army remains hesitant about aggressing against the Finns. Russia's relative moderate line regarding Finland since the Winter War is probably because of this experience. For the Finns, the invasion was final proof that the Soviets wanted to destroy their independence. And since then, they've kept a very sharp eye on Moscow. Because of Vladimir Putin's Russian nationalism, Finland has now cast aside any neutrality cloak and formally become a NATO member as of April 2023. The Winter War of 1939 is a pertinent warning for contemporary Russian imperialists, something they are learning to their great cost in Ukraine. If you invade a territory where the civilians are implacably opposed to your invasion, you will regret it, as the Germans found out during Operation Barbarossa. Like the Battle of Stalingrad podcast that I produced a couple of years ago, I'm taking a closer look at the Russo-Finnish War of 1939 because history teaches us that dictators whether modern or archaic, all suffer from the same disease. By burrowing into the Winter War, we can better understand people like Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping, and better comprehend how a rules-based world has been replaced by totalitarians, tyrants who are autocratic and pernicious. With that, we end for this episode. The shooting starts in episode 2. Please head off to the website abwarpodcast.com You'll find a page dedicated to the series and links to the audio. I'm using desmondlatham.blog for regular updates. I'm also on X if you want to chat to me directly, at Des Latham. Until next, be bashed.